Hi friends, welcome to the Psyche Mental Wellbeing Podcast with me, your host, Hannah. On the show, I'm joined each episode by an amazing guest to have an honest conversation, share our real life experiences and tackle stigma and misconceptions around mental health along the way. We believe that everyone would benefit from focusing a little more on their mental well-being, and we're here to support you to do just that. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, friends, and welcome back. Hope you are doing well, that you've had a good week. I have had what feels like a very busy week, uh, which I will talk about very briefly in a second. Um, last week was just me sharing about well-being, so um, thanks to, <laughs> to me. Um, so last week we were diving into well-being and doing a bit of a well-being res- reset, which very much came from me feeling a bit, ugh, <laughs> a bit run down and uh, really needing to refocus um, on nurturing myself. And I'm doing a bit better in that area, still ongoing. Uh, sort of process and as I said I've sort of been a bit non-stop uh, Thursday Friday I was away on a branding workshop which was awesome and I'm going to talk a little bit right at the end about some of that not all of it because that's not what the show is about but a little bit about how it kind of pertains to uh, to me and my business and that kind of stuff um, and then I was at my cousin's wedding yesterday so I'm recording this Sunday I normally sort of do this on Saturday but yesterday I was at my cousin's wedding which was so lovely uh, to connect and see people especially as we we've sort of just had a, a loss in the family so it was kind of sort of sad in that way but nice to actually see people and um and connect and we hadn't seen sort of all cousins and stuff um on, on the same side of the family since the summer when I got married and um you know my cousin postponed her wedding uh, a few times because of uh, all the lockdowns and restrictions so it was just so lovely for her to finally have her day she looked stunningly beautiful um and you know she's got sort of a young family so it was just such a lovely day sort of celebrating love and uh, seeing family and it was also very cold <laughs> but it was a great time um so yes I'm recording this on Sunday um and yeah sort of back to hopefully a bit more structure and a bit more normality next week being sort of around home um, and based at home so I'm really excited to share this episode with you it's really funny the timing that uh, I've got a few interviews sort of in the pipeline to come out but people haven't sent me all the information I need to release it uh, so this one's sort of been bumped forward and it's actually just really perfect like synchronistic timing uh, for the sort of repositioning I'm doing which I'll mention at the end stay tuned for that so yeah we're really diving into some great topics with Chris today massive thank you before we even start to Chris for joining us we're talking about peer support um, and loads and loads of great stuff around that so I really hope that you enjoy this this episode this conversation and I will be back super quickly at the end Hi everyone, and I'm really happy to welcome today's guest, Chris, to the podcast. So Chris, welcome, and if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you so much, Hannah, for having me. Um, So my name is Chris. I currently live in Massachusetts in the United States. Uh, I work for a um, mental health service agency uh, called Baco Human Services, which is located in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, again, United States. And I got into the peer support field about six years ago. 
uh, and, and mainly the reason for that was uh, I had been through a lot of different situations over the past uh, decade or so um, that have caused a lot of anxiety and trauma. And I'm also autistic. So there's a lot of different life situations that I've been through that have really caused me to eventually lead into working in the peer support field. And it was mainly with sort of the, the lived experiences that I have with not only being autistic, but also going through a lot of situations that have caused anxiety and trauma, which some of it was related to autism, some of it was not, some of it was just socially related life scenarios. I got into peer support after um, I had attended a college in the state of Rhode Island when I was deep into all of those situations. And I was running a leadership organization at the time, and I had done some networking with people who were involved in peer support in the state of Rhode Island. And when they had shared their recovery stories, I was very inspired by it, but I wasn't in the field yet. I was in the middle of collaborating with them and with some of the people that I was supporting in a leadership organization on campus for a community service event that we were all doing together. And so a year ended up passing by, I graduated from college and I really, the dreams that I had at the time were to work as a music educator for a public school setting. And because of a lot of the stuff I went through, my dreams ended up really being shattered and I felt like I had lost my sense of direction. I really didn't know where to go in my life or what to do at that point. So I ended up reconnecting with one of my, one of my connections by phone and she had told me about a pilot peer support training that was happening in the state of Rhode Island that I eventually attended. And the training in and of itself was about a week long. And the defining moment that got me into doing peer support in general was when I was asked to share my recovery story. Now, when I was sharing that, it was interesting because it was the first time that I was ever asked to do that. And at the time, I didn't really know what to say. So kind of my whole process when I thought about sharing my story was, let's just dazzle it up, let's glitter it up and see what happens. And so I started sharing about my experiences as I knew of at the time, dealing with being autistic and also going through anxiety and trauma. And keep in mind, most of the people that I had attended the training with uh, had mainly experiences with substance use. Uh, more so than mental health. So I wasn't sure if I felt like I had belonged right away. But the defining moment that came was when I shared my story. And I was kind of being self defeatist, kind of saying that I felt like my story was stupid, and that it didn't make any sense. And one of the guys was was asking me to stop and basically asking me why I was saying that about myself. And after I had told him that I don't have a lot of experience with substance use, he ended up saying that it didn't really matter what I had experience with or, or not, that my story is my story and no one can take that away from me. As soon as he said that, I started crying tears of joy. And I remember hugging everybody in the group that I was sharing my story to. And that's when I realized what peer support actually felt like. And that's what made me realize, like, this is what I want to do for a living. And so eventually I ended up doing peer support in a couple of different organizations and doing unpaid volunteer work and internships in the state of Rhode Island for a few months. And then eventually I started working in the peer support field 
in Massachusetts in early 2016. Um, and then from there, I ended up working in the peer support uh, field, if you will, in emergency service programs, as well as in a longer term mental health service setting. And as of late 2019, I then ended up taking on a job working as the director of a training and internship program called the Recovery Education and Learning Program, or the REAL program for short, at Bay Cove. So it's, it's been a very interesting ride over the past six years, and I am so happy that I was able to get into the field because peer support was one of the main reasons as to why I was able to evolve as a person and I was able to look at my life in such a completely different way that was very positive. And um, when people bring up the word recovery, to me, that word means self-evolvement because self-evolvement throughout everything I've been through in my life was really the main central piece of everything. And I really think it's important whether or not you work in the field or whether or not you work in human services that as people, we always want to self-evolve, right? So I think that for me was extremely important and that's why to this day I still love working in the field and I still love being able to inspire hope in others and to let them know that really anything is possible. Yeah I mean thank you so much for sharing you know your story and kind of um, yeah your journey and it's really interesting the word recovery because I sometimes and I'm involved in, in peer support but in a voluntary capacity which I think in the UK is kind of more where we're at it's like an additional voluntary rather than um like a paid role per se um and so I'm a a mental health peer supporter but when I talk about my own sort of journey sometimes I'm like what is what is the word and so for me it was anxiety and depression and I sometimes like healing um but I sometimes sort of say recovery from being anxious and depressed to not being anxious and depressed and it's one of the words that I play around with but I don't know (laughs) like often I don't know what the what word to use. Yeah, that that's that's interesting that you say that because I, I always wonder, well, first off, you know, one of the things that I, I think is really important that I actually teach in a, a training that I do that's part of the uh, the real program that I mentioned briefly, um, is that a lot of people either identify with the word recovery in different ways that you don't expect, or they don't at all. Um, and it's interesting because I'm an autistic man. I also have dealt with anxiety and trauma. So I I kind of feel like I'm experiencing a little bit of a duality through both perspectives. And what I mean by that is if you think of someone who is autistic, right? The majority of the community, if not the entire community, I would even go with that far to say, they don't really identify with the word recovery in general because recovery to them means regaining something they once had. Now, there may be other different life scenarios that they might be recovering from, but when it comes to autism, not really, because, you know, there, there, I mean, there's a lot of stuff out there that's about autism. And there's, as we know, there's a lot of research that is still not widely known about, you know, what causes it or more so, um, you know, just how really to support people that are autistic or that are considered considered as neurodiverse in different ways. Um, but in any social disability community, usually a lot of them do not identify with the word recovery for, for that reason. It's because, you know, it's part of an identity that really makes us all unique in terms of having wonderful gifts that, and contributions that we can bring to society, that we can bring to the world. And 
it's kind of really sad when you think about it, when, you know, a lot of people, when they would see those experiences as whether not just being autistic, but also being deaf or being blind, when that is seen as, as just purely a deficit that needs to be gotten rid of, I think it's, it's really unfortunate. And a lot of that has to do with the lack of systemic education around how to support people that have different viewpoints around this. So that's one of the things I, I sort of think about as to why there may be some folks that we may uh, meet at one point that may not identify with the word recovery. So one of the things I say in the training a lot is that it's really important to honor and interpret, uh, you know, how people interpret their lived experiences, whether they identify with it or not, even if they're not part of, part of the social disability communities, but they are part of different communities of different lived experiences outside of that. Some people may still not identify with that word and that's okay. It, you know, a huge part of the reason as to why peer support in Massachusetts exists in the way that it does is because a lot of people that receive services don't often have an opportunity to really have that connection and to build those mutual relationships with people that have similar lived experiences, whether it's a provider that has those lived experiences, or if it's really another person who does, um, because of a lot of times the way the mental health system ends up being set up just as a whole. I'm not sure if it's like this where you are, but in the United States, there's, you know, a lot of that dynamic going on in, in our society here. So those are the thoughts that kind of come to mind when you were saying all that about the word recovery and sort of the differences. Yeah. And I mean, you're, um, when you're talking about kind of neurodiversity and stuff, that's another thing that I could honestly talk about all day. <laughs> I'm really interested in. Um, so my, my background, you know, I, I talk about mental health a lot, but I worked in education and particularly uh, with young people on the autistic spectrum. And it's uh, something I've, I've not talked about much on um, the podcast really, because I, I've always like through my life been like, oh, there's something wrong with me. I don't feel like I fit in. I feel weird. And, and when, when I was teaching, my students were like, you're one of us. <laughs> you're, you're one of us. And actually, I went through the diagnostic process myself as an adult, but it was like, a, mm, no, you're coping. We're not going to give you the, the diagnosis, basically. And something I'm really interested in is in you know, neurodiversity and kind of identity and mental health and how that sort of, you know, when you're, you, you have things kind of socially that you, you don't understand, or you kind of have that, that feeling of difference in a way and how, how that impacts your mental health, but then also how getting that sort of validation of there is nothing wrong with you. You, you're just wired a little bit differently. And that is awesome. And you know, and the impact that has, because it's something I still sometimes I'm like, it's fine, because I know myself, and I've done a lot of reading and studying and work with lots of people. And I kind of, you know, have reached a point in myself, like kind of self diagnosed, I feel okay, but sometimes I'm like, oh, but it's not like a, a real one. And it's, and you know, anyway, it's a thing I could talk about all day. As well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's very interesting, you say that as well, because one of the things that I bring up in, in the training and also what um, the peer special certification training brings up in the, in the state of Massachusetts is doing away from this mentality of what's wrong with you and going with what happened to you. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with that kind of uh, change in dichotomy, but it's, it's a very essential mentality shift to have because so often the way the mental health system is 
uh, operated, if you will, is from that lens of what's wrong with you when you really think about it. Um, and there's this maintenance-based system that often exists where a lot of people end up being in situations where because of the, of the systemic pressures that a lot of providers are put through, a lot of them often believe that they have to get people to accept a service or treatment no matter, no matter how they do it when really it should be about the connection and the mutuality, um, which is similar to peer support. Even if you're working in a clinical role, you could have that same type of relationship with, with folks who receive services. So, and when you go to that dynamic, it really changes the whole conversation about, you know, discussing what happened to you. Because really when you're, when you're going into that mentality, you are really having a conversation with the person in a much deeper level that's beyond services, treatment, and diagnoses. So that's all important. Well, yeah, and I, you know, I think we as human creatures, as I like to call us, we, it's all about how we make sense of our world and ourselves and things that happen. And you can have almost like the objective truth, whatever that is, but that doesn't really matter so much. It's kind of what you make of it and how you interpret that and internalize it. Um, and so if you're always focused on the, yeah, the labels or the, you know, what's wrong or whatever, that in some ways doesn't matter so much because it's what you've made of it, what you've kind of taken from that, how it's impacted you. And imagine well it's true everywhere <laughs> there's some really interesting research about um therapy and about kind of coaching and things like that that it is the relationship with that person rather than any kind of modality you know that is the the most kind of impactful on those outcomes because if you don't trust that person if you don't feel that you can open up and talk to them then it's not going to help even if it is the most amazing therapeutic model in the world the relationship is the biggest factor. And I think sometimes if it's someone who has that lived experience, it's almost like you get it. I don't need to like, I don't feel like I have to explain everything because already you kind of get it. And I sort of, there's a, almost like an implicit sort of trust and understanding in that that I think is, is so powerful. Uh, absolutely. And, and then one thing I wanted to kind of point out about the labels aspect is that and this is one of the things I've seen working for a long-term mental health service program also at Bay Cove before the current job I have now is I would often provide peer support to residents in group home settings or in the community. And one of the things I found a lot is that when I would introduce myself and say my title that I'm a peer specialist, or even if I don't even introduce myself as that, but I just meet with them for the first time, there have been quite a few instances where Either some people would not really open up to me and they would, you know, remain in silence for, you know, whether it's weeks or months or so until they really felt comfortable with me enough and they've seen me enough to really get to know me and talk to me. Or a lot of them would be so open so quickly, but then some of them would immediately start naming all the diagnostic and identity labels that they've been given. So, you know, an example of that would be like, if I was to introduce myself to you, Hannah, as the peer specialist, like you might be in that situation, someone who might be like, well, I'm bipolar, I'm schizophrenic, I'm all these labels, right? Just hypothetically speaking. And usually at that time, you know, when I, at least when I first encountered it, I didn't really know quite what to make of it. But then as I got better in the role as a peer specialist for that particular environment, 
one of the things I start, the questions I started asking to people, well, first off, what I would do is I usually would say to them, like, thank you for sharing it. It sounds like, you know, you've, you've received all, all these labels and had all these experiences. And it sounds like there's quite a bit there. And then I would start asking them, you know, when you say that you're all those labels, what is that experience like for you to have those labels? How do you feel about them? And if I would ask questions similar to that, that's when the deeper level type of conversation happens and you get to really know them beyond the services, the programs, diagnosis and treatment and what have you, rather than, um, you know, either uh, pathologizing the labels or naming an experience for someone, being sure to really have that deeper level conversation is so important. And then that's when you get to find whether or not the person identifies with those labels, because sometimes you might find out from them that they do identify with them because of, a, of particular experiences that they had. But then you might also find that they identify with those labels because they've had providers that have said that to them for years, decades, or even their whole life. And then you might have people that may not really feel like those labels are valid at all. And so really the whole point of all of this is kind of going back to what I was saying about honoring how people interpret their lived experiences in order to keep the connection and mutuality going. So it's really interest, interesting when you kind of mention about the labels part, because those are some of the things I notice um, while I'm providing peer support. And even to this day, every once in a while, it, it, it still happens. Yeah. I mean, labeling, I'm sure it's the same though, is a big debate about the the kind of positives and negatives of having a label and how it can open up access to support and sometimes it can be a validation to people's lived experience but it also can be really stigmatizing sometimes as well and really limiting so I mean that's a whole other discussion <laughs> that we could go into I know um we've sort of talked like around peer support and it's been a fab conversation, not really as focused as I normally try and be, but that's amazing because we just kind of got all kinds of different places. Um, and I think we've probably sort of covered this as we, uh, we've been talking anyway, but why is peer support so impactful and so important in mental health services? I think it's, it's really impactful. I think initially just simply for the fact that that connection and mutuality that people in general crave with others like them that have those similar lived experiences is really necessary, you know, in terms of a need to really be met, because oftentimes a lot of them have experienced many forms of disenfranchisement, um, whether it's financially or in terms of lack of resources or other options that are in their area or it could be in some cases, the way that they've been treated um, by some of the providers in their team. It could be really anything that you could think of that could cause um, a lot of different um, problems, challenges, or even at times uh, negative life experiences or even uh, traumatization to happen for a really long time. And so oftentimes when they're going through all of that, they find it really difficult to really connect with people or to have an opportunity to, to connect with people because of the way that it's set up. So if you think of how a lot of people experience inpatient hospitalization and what a lot of people end up going through and sort of the system's mentality that is both fear-based and deficit-based in terms of the setup of the system where the focus is on getting people to do certain things 
and getting them to a point of maintenance or as a clinical term might be used baseline, quote unquote. So because there's a lot of that happening, a lot of times the connection to mutuality is not emphasized. And peer support is really something that can provide that opportunity in a unique way that goes so far beyond uh, you know, the system, so far beyond diagnosis and treatment and services. And you know, another training that I recently took, which you may or may not have heard of, is actually called intentional peer support, otherwise known as IPS. And that is a five-day training where it's, it specifies in its framework the uh, specific dynamics within the peer support relationship where connection and mutuality are emphasized in a deeper way, even then statewide peer special certification trainings can offer, um, even though ours in Massachusetts implements IPS a little bit here or there. But the IPS framework really emphasizes this piece and, you know, another reason why peer support is impactful is kind of going back to IPS for a second is, and it's part of their slogan where the slogan for the IPS organization, where it mentions peer support is about social change. At the end of the day, that is so, so true. Um, and, you know, it may not easily be seen in terms of your, your day-to-day work as a peer specialist when you're supporting people individually on certain goals they want to achieve, or even just by having a conversation if there's no goal attached to the relationship. Um, But it is so true, because even if you're just providing peer support to one person, and and you're making a difference in someone's life, and you are having a an open mutual relationship where both you and the person mutually think of unlimited or endless possibilities of what life could be like, right beyond the system. It, it really, if you, if you even just have that experience with one person, it makes such a huge difference in the world and you're already making social change just by doing that. And it gets even more powerful if you also uh, get involved in doing that similar thing with running peer support groups. And then if you have in your own time, you know, a, an opportunity to, to take a step further and do legislative advocacy as well on a systemic level where there's bills that are related to peer specialist work, which is uh, some of what I've done as well on the side. So when you have a chance to do all of that and you compound all of that social change, then it starts to really reform how the system works. So peer support has so many impactful benefits, but the connection and mutuality piece and the limitless possibilities that you and the person mutually think of along with the unlimited possibilities of how that can translate to social change and systemic and legislative advocacy, as well as just everyday work, um, the, the possibilities for that are endless. Yeah, amazing. Thank you for sharing that. And I, I'm thinking about in, in the UK, and I don't know that we, it's, it's something that is becoming much more part of our model, our sort of health service. I know in this, in this, um, I was going to say state, it's not a state, county. <laughs> I don't know where state comes from. <laughs> <laughs> but the whole country is like the size of one state, probably. I don't know. Anyway, uh, the county <laughs> I'm in um, is, is going for much more of this. I don't know if it's a pilot still, but this fully set up kind of peer support model, interagency working, um, a lot of um, kind of charitable nonprofit organizations 
kind of delivering their services and working together in this really collective way and peer support being like a central part of it which um which is amazing but I don't know that as much as we're sort of taking it seriously in that way whether it's something that is you can be paid to be a peer supporter and and to share lived experience or whether there's something that we're sort of a bit behind on that of really appreciating the value of it in the same way as you know to actually employ people rather than expecting them to to give their time and work for free to support people yeah well one of the things I'm just thinking about as you're pointing that out Hannah is that and this is something like even in Massachusetts we've been kind of struggling with that times too and even just across the country and all the other 49 states is because in the majority of of the United States peer support roles are both paid and voluntary, depending on where you work, the agency, the program, and all that. But in Massachusetts, especially, along with probably many other states, once you start getting into sort of the paid role territory for peer support, it does come with its own challenges, systemically speaking, especially when there's legislative bills on peer specialist work coming from people who, for whatever reason, um, haven't been exposed to, to the peer support field in and of itself and who um, really don't have a strong educational background on what peer support is and what it isn't, that starts to become an issue at different points. And in Massachusetts, I'll just say, the peer support field be, actually became a field as it's known right now since either 2005 or 2006. So it's relatively new-ish for Massachusetts. It's been around for about 15 to 16 years. But every now and then I see peer specialist bills come up uh, that include a lot of language that ends up really being problematic in many ways. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that, you know, again, it's coming from a place of like, legislators not really having a full understanding of what peer specialists do and what they don't do um, and the processes on how bills go through the House and the Senate and all that. And so when you have, when you're living in an area where peer supporters are, are often paid, there are a lot of different entities that have sort of have their own um, point of view, if you will, about how peer support is and how it isn't. And you know, thankfully, where I, I work at Bay Cove, they have, you know, they've, they've for a long time, they've, they've had an understanding of, of how peer support actually works and, and doesn't work. And the, the organization that I work at has been evolving over time in terms of how, how it, it does work and, and what peer, also what peer support isn't. So there are agencies across the state of Massachusetts and even across the country that have been sort of evolving in that regard. And a lot of that has to do with peer supporters providing the education uh, to colleagues about, you know, what that is and, and how impactful that is. But, um, but yeah, so it, it gets really challenging um, when you get into paid role territory in that, in that aspect. And I think a lot of it also has to do with, um, you know, I think sort of how Western society is, generally speaking. I don't know if this is um, impacting you kind of where you are, but there are certain societies where if sort of the whole premise of the economy is more of, you know, more capitalistic or more from the instance of where profit, it ends up becoming more of a thing. That's when 
a lot of times we have to sort of watch out for um, for those who put stuff out there, if you will, that may not be knowledgeable about what peer support is. And so, you know, that's kind of where the systemic advocacy and the change happens is where we have to kind of step up and and let people know what, what we actually do and don't do. So hopefully you don't have to go through that when that, when that time comes. <laughs> yeah. Well, and actually I was kind of, um, you know, thinking as you were talking about, um, I guess just the, the different setups of our <laughs> health systems. And so I was wondering if someone accesses peer support, is that something that either is funded through private health insurance or they have to pay for themselves how does it kind of without going too much into the details is it basically a paid for service for the the person so i think just generally speaking it's it's different from state to state um i would say that there are some agencies where peer supporters are funded by private uh, grants and then there are also other states where peer supporters are, are funded by state funding and then you know, there are also peer supporters from, from each state that are funded by different funding sources. So really, it, it depends from state to state how, how that's funded, generally speaking. Yeah, because I think in the in the UK, it's um, probably some now funded by the health service, some by charitable organizations. But for individuals, it is free to them to access. So there is no cost to the individual in any way. Um, I know particularly this, the service that I work for, they're referred, they don't pay anything <laughs> at all. And maybe I wonder if that's part of it, the fact that it's more voluntary run because it is a completely, you know, there's there's no money coming from the person receiving the service from health service or whatever. It's, um, yeah. It's, so it's, it's, so it's really interesting, you know, uh, how that happens. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, when it does get going where you are in the UK and in terms of offering more paid roles, maybe the funding sources might be different in your case, but, um, but I, I think it really all depends on sort of the circumstances of where the state is in. And, and I think part of, part of this is also the involvement of where peer support is at in that particular state, because if I'm not mistaken, there may still be a handful of states where the peer support field might not even exist yet, or it may just be developing. Um, even to this day. So there are some states uh, like Massachusetts that are more ahead of, of the curve, and then there are others um, that are kind of lagging a little bit. So it, it really depends on on which state you live in, if you were to live in the United States. Awesome. Well, um, I mean, you know, there's loads that we could talk about all day. <laughs> um, <laughs> before I ask you my set questions, I wonder if you've got a, a final thought on peer support, mental health services, life, the world in general, anything uh, that you'd like to share with us? Absolutely. So one of the things that I, I want to make sure that, um, that, you know, people that are listening are aware of is that, you know, whether you work as a peer supporter or whether you work in the mental health system at all, or if you're just kind of learning about mental health, one of the things to know is that there are um, a lot of discrepancies, discrepancies out there, especially you know, from big, big pharmaceutical companies, from the media and from other entities that really talk about mental health from different points of view. Uh, and that ends up trickling down in terms of like how the system is set up and how it ultimately affects people that receive services. So one thing I, I really urge people that are encountering those that are going through 
challenges that are related to mental health or even substance use or trauma or other life altering experiences is really making sure that people, rather than you know making presumptions or operating from a place of fear towards those and um, immediately thinking of like putting someone in a hospital or um, putting someone in a, a service treatment or program, make sure that you take the time to get to know the person and to really actively listen to what they have to say in terms of what they're going through in their current lived experience. And really make sure that you really focus on connecting with them and, and building mutuality and making sure that if, if you have been through the same thing, we're relevant that, you know, you share that piece of yourself and you really take the time to just be with them. And you will find that if you're able to do that and you ask deeper level questions, that you'll be able to learn about their life stories from a whole new perspective. And then the other piece is making sure to question everything you hear from the media, from how we're educated about mental health um, and doctors and other entities as well. Um, because there's so much stuff that's out there that's mental health related that a lot of it is very subjective, uh, whether we realize it or not. So um, really making sure that you're kind of challenging the status quo and asking questions is really important, as well as really focusing on kind of, you know, also owning your biases um, and also, but not even though you're acknowledging them, making sure that you don't act out of those when you're meeting with people that is going through some type of challenge. So making sure that you're actively listening and connecting with them is important. Brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing that. So yes, I would love to hear your thoughts on my set questions I ask everyone. So yeah, let's dive in. The first one is what brings you joy in your life? For me, uh, what, for me, what brings me joy in my life is music. Um, so as, as a side gig that I do other than peer support, uh, I have one student that I teach piano at, at his house. Uh, so I love doing that and I haven't done it as much recently because of COVID, but I, there were times where occasionally I would perform at different places, uh, different piano pieces or more so when I was in college, you know, I always enjoyed performing at different recitals and concerts and stuff like that. So I'm hoping to kind of go back to that again, but I just love music and, you know, it, it can really just be any style. It can be classical. It can be popular. It could really be almost anything. And so, yeah, so music is one of the things that brings me joy. And it's something that has really kind of helped me in the healing process through the stuff I was going through as well. So, um, so music, and then just really, um, whether it's work-related or not, just really connecting with people and getting to network and to really uh, learn new things from others and to really challenge myself with new adventures. So um, so those are the things that bring me joy. Brilliant. Thank you for this. And uh, the next question, sometimes similar, sometimes not. Uh, what makes your life meaningful? Mm. Well, for me, what, make, what makes my life more meaningful is I think just in general, just being of service to other people in general. And I, I, that I guess kind of almost goes without saying at this point, but I would say just being of service to others, no matter what someone is going through. Um, and just really, even if, even if there's not anything that you can do in terms of like specific resources, but being sure to just really, um, you know, connect with them and, and be with them, um, and really take the time to get to know people, um, you know, that, that connection, which is something that I also crave quite a bit, uh, especially in the, the world that we're living in with, with COVID, um, you know, is, is really meaningful for me 
um, because it, it's always so, uh, something for me that inspires me to really evolve and to be a better person and to be able to even get into things that I never thought I could get into in my life before. So, um, so yeah, so that being of service to others, but also using those experiences to help me evolve and to be a better person. Um, to me, that's what brings meaning to my life. Awesome. Thank you. Um, so my next two questions are around our overarching topic on the podcast, which is mental well-being. So the first one is what does mental well-being mean to you? Uh, mental well-being to me, well, I mentioned about self-evolvement. So that's number one. Also, mental well-being to me um, means self-care because there are times and I, I haven't always focused on this um, earlier in my life, but right now, because of all the stuff I had to go through with my past anxiety and trauma that I went through, that I was able to overcome a lot of it. I'm in definitely a good and more prosperous place now compared to even a decade ago, but I'm really paying attention to the self-care aspect this time. So to me, that would mean meditating every day, going for a walk, or um, as of late, going to the farmer's market every Saturday. <laughs> um, just think, just, you know, either doing any of those routine things, but also, you know, going to Newport, Rhode Island to visit one of their beaches there. Um, and just kind of spending time in solitude, hanging out with friends, really anything that I can do to kind of get my mind off of whatever is going on, or even just, just to have a, an excursion just for the heck of it. Um, all that stuff to me is, is really impactful for my mental well-being. And I used to do a lot of that stuff in high school as a teenager, but what was different then versus now is, um, I didn't pay attention to self-care back then because I was busy doing 5 million other things after school activities, you name it. I did almost everything except for sports, but you know, so I did almost everything under the sun, but I didn't think of self-care. So this time I am getting involved with a lot of things that really enrich my life, but I am including self-care into this. Even if, even if everything is going well, making sure that I take a minute to, to breathe, to meditate and do things that are outside of whatever rut I might be in or just outside of like what I do on my day-to-day -day routine anyway. Um, so self-care is, is big for me in that regard. And I think you've answered my follow-up question in that answer anyway, but I'll, I'll ask it anyway, in case you want to add anything else. <laughs> uh, and my follow-up is always how you look after your own mental well-being. Yes. So that's, so that's where self-care comes in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Cause some people just do the definition, but you know, you, you were ahead of me preempted, <laughs> what do you do um so my, my next question is sometimes a bit of a challenge so we'll see how would you describe your own mindset mm. I think in general how I would describe my mindset right now to me it's really about freedom and, and independence because right right now I am you know getting some stuff done in the works to help me get a new place to live. But then there's also new connections that I'm networking with in order to grow my own professional career prospects. And there's also personal relationships that I've been getting into that I've been really evolving in. So I think having the freedom and the independence to do those things and, and having that be my mantra in terms of where my mindset is right now and how I feel like it will continue to be that in the future. 
um, is, is really important. So, and I guess I would just say, you know, to the audience in general, like doing anything to take care of yourself or doing anything to, you know, really evolve as a better person, um, you know, make sure that you, you include freedom and independence in that, whatever that means to you, because having those two aspects is so, so important to having this mindset of just feeling free and not feeling trapped in your own rut. And I have been in that journey for quite a, a few, maybe even a few to several years at this point. And because of all the stuff that I worked through to overcome by myself, mostly, um, even at moments where I didn't always um, have support more so way back when over the over earlier in the 2010s, freedom and independence, I, I can't emphasize enough, it is extremely important. So I think to me, that's where my mindset is right now and where I feel like my mindset will be in the future. Perfect. Thank you so much for that. This next one is my favorite question to ask. Um, so uh, I always ask everyone that comes on to leave us with one to three top tips of things that we could try in our life that could have a massive impact. And obviously we're all unique individuals, not everything is going to work for everyone, but do you have one to three tips about anything that we could try that could be awesome for us? So I think one tip that I can share with all of you is really find new opportunities to connect with people, get to really know them, whether it's for a personal or professional reason, because having new relationships is extremely, extremely important. Um, and just for myself, I mean, as in addition to peer support work, I also went through a life coach for the, the first few months of this year. And well, that's one of the things that really kind of stuck to me was the important need for having relationships, for having connection and mutuality, and also for building a sense of community. And everyone has what they feel is their right moment for this. So in no way am I pushing this on anyone that feels like, you know, now is not the best time because we all have our own journeys, right? We all are in various situations where we have to overcome a lot of our own internal stuff first. So that's really important, but I would definitely say, you know, look for new opportunities to connect with people and do everything you can to the best of your ability to be consistent with those connections. Um, whether it's, you know, for a professional networking reason, like in my case, or if it's going to a book group or going to, you know, any type of uh, event that happens on a frequent basis is, is extremely important. So that's, that's one tip that I would say, because for me, you know, that meant networking and networking really saved my life in so many ways, whether it's mentally, emotionally, physically, or spiritually. Um, it really was an essential piece. So doing everything you absolutely can, uh, once you've overcome your own internal conflicts or you've overcome your own lived experiences that caused trauma or any you know negativity in your life, um, really making sure that you uh, find new opportunities to make those connections happen um, and form new relationships that are enriching in your life. Um, that's, that's one tip that I would give. Brilliant. Thank you so much for that. Um, my next question um, is a recommendation question. So I love to read. You can't see all my books. 
um actually only half of them are up here the rest downstairs but you can't see them all uh so um i ask everyone that comes on if they have um, a top tip for a book or a ted talk or something that has been really impactful in your life that you would recommend to us well, one thing that I would definitely highly recommend, and this kind of goes to back to what I said earlier about connection and mutuality, is if you if you look for any video on YouTube by uh, a lady by the name of Brene Brown, when she talks about empathy and talking about how connection and mutuality happen, even though she doesn't mention about peer support in the video in general, she does talk about what empathy looks like and the differences between that and sympathy um and just downright not doing either or <laughs> um so i think in terms of this conversation looking for anything by brene brown that talks about that topic is extremely important um and she has a lot of videos that she does that she does on that um and you could find them on youtube yeah brilliant i mean i love brene brown several of her <laughs> books and watch her ted talks and everything so uh, yeah thank you so much and then that brings me to my final question, Chris, which is where people can connect with you online. Um, if if you're open to connecting with people, if you've got anything going on that people can check out, let us know the details. Absolutely. Yeah. So if people would like to connect with me, they can certainly connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, so I go by uh, the name Christopher Loriano. So um, I'm sure you'll probably put the, the spelling in there for people. So so Christopher Loriano, um, that's what I go under on my LinkedIn profile. So you can connect with me there. Also too, um, and, I, and I believe you have this as well, people can connect with me on the real program link through Baco of Human Services if they want to know more about what I do, um, the training that I offer, as well as about the um, paid stipend internships that we offer, which are more for those that um, live in the United States um, only. But if you want to just learn more about the program and to really connect with me to learn more about it, you can check out that website link as well as connect with me on LinkedIn. And um, even if it's just to uh, get to know me a little bit more, um, I'd be more than happy to connect with you through any of those mediums. Brilliant. Thank you so much. I'll absolutely link in the show notes so people can find the links and the spelling and, and everything <laughs> from that there. Chris, thank you so, so much um, for everything that you've shared for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. I know at the beginning I said I was trying to make these conversations shorter, but we had such a great time that we have not made it shorter at all. <laughs> but that is totally fine because, you know, I think if it's in a flow and it's really interesting, then you know, hopefully other people listening, find it, I found it really interesting. Hopefully everyone else did. I'm sure everyone else did as well. But thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Hannah, for having me. It's It's been such a huge pleasure and a huge honor. So thank you so much. Yeah, you're so welcome. So a uh, massive thank you to Chris again for joining us. And as I said, it kind of falls at the perfect time uh, because I've really been thinking about the things I'm passionate about and what I want to focus on in my business and I know I'm not very good at sort of mentioning hey this is the stuff I do and this is how you can work with with me which honestly when I started the podcast it was kind of a bit of like oh it's a it's a good thing to do for business strategy and it's not been that at all it's a real passion project I love having the conversations I love getting to talk about mental health mental well-being kind of really getting to um to play out the curious side of my nature and ask people questions and try and understand the world from people's different perspectives and kind of share all of that 
so very much it's like a, a passion thing and it's going to stay kind of as as it is but in terms of the specifically the the sort of stuff that I do and, and the services that I offer I'm sort of shifting a little bit really I'm niching down if you like really into the the core of my passion which really does come from my own lived experience which is something that we, we talked about in this and so I mentioned a little bit about my experience with oh do I have uh, Asperger's and um, go through the diagnostic process and I think recently that's been on my mind again and kind of going and I'll I might do um, a, a more in-depth episode about this if people are interested but more kind of um, going yes that does make sense of um, my experience and, and how I see the world and also um, recently kind of reading more about ADHD and women and kind of going oh yeah <laughs> that as well and so, so, so this is something I'm really interested in about the, the presentation of women, uh, the diagnostic process, and also really about the post-diagnostic support or sometimes lack of it that you can get a diagnosis at sort of any age and then it's bye, <laughs> you're on your own, you're discharged from the services. And you really have to sort of pick up the pieces and kind of make sense of what, what does that mean for me? What does this label or not label mean to me and again this is something we sort of touched on in this conversation and and you know who am I uh, with all that and within within all of this and, and just generally and so that piece about identity about the the labeling that process and really about sort of owning our strengths and um you know figuring out strategies for our challenges all that kind of stuff is really what I'm going to be focusing on and I have a new from this branding workshop <laughs> I will be doing more work on that but really the sort of essence of my brand that came from that is about oh let me check okay got it <laughs> I don't want to get it wrong the first time I tell you about it so uh really the essence of my brand and this maybe becomes a bit of like a strap line or tagline is about empowering neurodiverse individuals and kind of specifically within that um adolescent girls and, and women um and not adolescent women <laughs> adolescent girls and adult women who have received like a late diagnosis like specifically but anyway, empowering those individuals to own their awesomeness through discovery acceptance and transformational support so i think there's a whole piece around self-discovery possibly for all of us but but specifically uh, in this experience about acceptance of, of all of that and then being able to sort of transform things and sort of move forward take all that that information that that growth that learning etc and uh yeah move forward so that really is um yeah kind of what i'm gonna sort of talk about more so um you may have noticed if you're a long-term listener that we have conversations around mental well-being and about mental health um, i want to sort of do more conversations again where people share their mental health experience but we have also had quite a few neurodiverse individuals on which um is maybe partly intentional because i particularly really like ampl amplifying uh, those voices but also maybe not maybe unconsciously <laughs> has happened and so we probably still have uh, a mix of both so if you're listening and you are not neurodiverse you're not really sure what I'm talking about um the takeover episode with Jess really I, I had a chance to sort of geek out and talk about uh, my passion for this area so you could check that one out but don't worry if you are not neurodiverse or don't know what I'm talking about um you know if you're here and you're enjoying the mental well-being and mental health talk 
that's still happening this show i think will probably kind of continue forever uh, <laughs> in the in this sort of way that it is talking about the kind of things that we talk about so yeah um so i guess two things the first is as i've just said continue blah blah talking about the things we're talking about I am just about to start scheduling new interviews for the new year. So um, as I've mentioned in the last couple of weeks, if you have suggestions for topics, for people, or you would like to be a guest and share your personal lived experience, then please do get in touch. Head over to the website, www.psykepsykhe.co.uk and you can send suggestions through the contact us page. And there is a link on the podcast page about to, to the um there's a google form to um to submit if you're interested in being a guest so please do that and if anything that i was saying about girls women with autism particularly asperger's presentation and adhd and late diagnosis or suspected you know that um, and wanting to sort of have a safe space to sort of explore that and talk through that then get in touch if you're interested in working with me. My website is not fully updated yet. There is stuff about neurodiversity, but uh, it's still a bit broader than that. But if it resonated and you're interested in working together, I have a couple of spaces for working with new clients and offering support. Um, so please do reach out and get in touch. I would love to hear from you. Or if you have general feedback or anything, uh, then you can connect, contact us via the website, do that, or at Psyche Coaching, P-S-Y-K-H-E Coaching on Instagram and Facebook are our kind of main places that I hang out. Sometimes, although I feel <laughs> not so much at the moment, it's uh, not my natural uh, place to be. But anyway, that's it. That's everything for today. I said this would be super quick. It hasn't been. Sorry about that. Same <laughs> as in the conversation I'd said to Chris at the beginning. I'm trying to keep my episode shorter. Again, it didn't happen. I think sometimes... If you're in something interesting and good and you're on a roll, I think it's quality over quantity or something like that. I don't know. But um, I hope that you enjoy the episodes, that the amount of time it, it kind of works for you, that you get something out of it. And um, I really do appreciate you for, for listening, uh, for connecting and for supporting the show. It really does mean a lot. So that's everything. Promise. Uh, until next week, as always. Take care of yourself, be kind to yourself, and I'll speak to you soon. Bye for now.